Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. To be here, we've had some awesome weather this year for SNAP. Hopefully my recording device will work. Oh, it's going right now. Perfect. All right. Uh, So tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 110. So while you're turning or scrolling to that spot, uh, I first want to talk about uh, the gospel. When we present the gospel, when we share the gospel, we mention our sinfulness. We mention God's holiness. And we talk about our separation from God because of that sin. And then we talk about the way to reconcile that relationship that's been broken by sin is through Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life and he died to forgive us of our sins. And if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, then he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and that relationship to God is restored. And that's how we present the gospel most of the time. But there's one key component that I left out. That's the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the gospel doesn't really mean too much. Without the resurrection, Jesus is still dead in the grave. The resurrection validates the perfect life and the sacrificial death that Jesus could do for us. The resurrection is proof that because Jesus did in fact live a perfect life, he was able to die for our sins, not for his own. So he could atone for our sins because he was a perfect sacrifice. So as we're looking through this Psalm, I just want us to keep the resurrection in mind as we're looking through this and as we're going through it. A couple more things I want to talk about before we get started. In this psalm, it mentions the Lord a lot, but you'll notice that it looks two different ways. It's not a typo. One way it's spelled capital L-O-R-D, and that is referring to God or Yahweh. The other way is capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and that's referring to Jesus. So as we're going through this psalm, I just want us to keep that in mind so that we're not confused about who we're talking about and who is being talked about. Just to give some background of this psalm, it's a prophetic messianic psalm that David wrote about Jesus. Psalm 110. Yeah, sorry, did I say that 110? Okay, okay, okay. <clears throat> so it's a messianic psalm about a prophecy of the Messiah to come, who is Jesus. So with that being said, I'm going to read the psalm, and then we can get started. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for what you are doing in the life of your church. God, as we look closely at this passage, help us to be reminded of the truths found in your word. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be edified. Help us to be challenged, God, to live this out. In Jesus' name, amen. So right away we see God, the Lord, Yahweh, telling Jesus to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what is the significance of sitting at the right hand of God or of anyone really in power? Well, you want to sit at the right hand of someone who has power or authority or influence. And because you're at their right hand, you also have that power and authority and influence. There's also a relationship between the person in power and the person to their right hand. There's trust. There's communication. There's unity within those two relationships. But it's an earned position. You can't just show up to someone and say, hey, I'm going to sit at your right hand, and now we're in power together. You got to earn it. It's not just freely given. And the disciples recognized in Jesus that he was a person of influence and power and authority. And two of his disciples were even so bold as to ask Jesus if they could sit at his right and his left hand when he's in his glory. And what was the response of Jesus? Exactly. He first said, you didn't know what you're asking for. You have no idea what that means. And then he says, are you able to drink from the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And obviously these are rhetorical questions. The answer is no. There's no way they could do that. And then he says, It's not for me to grant you this. It's for whom it's already been prepared for. He knew where he was going. And he knew the cost it was going to cost him to get there. Because of the resurrection, God has appointed Jesus as ruler and king to sit at his right hand. But he's only there for a time until his enemies are made his footstool. There will come a time when all of the enemies of Jesus will be humbled and completely submitted to him. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they will either do so willingly or unwillingly. And God sends out this power from Zion 
through his scepter. It says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So Zion means holy city or city of refuge. It's where God's people can live and worship him. Jerusalem was often called Zion, and Jerusalem just means city of peace. Now, this scepter could be referred to as an ornamental staff that's carried by a king. It represents power and sovereignty over the person's kingdom. But Jesus doesn't rule an earthly kingdom. And so his power, his authority doesn't have boundaries. It's over the entire earth. And that's why he can be given the command, rule in the midst of your enemies. The enemies of God are around the entire earth. And so is Jesus' rule. Jesus is ruling now and reigning as king because of the resurrection. And some of you might be thinking, it doesn't really always feel like it. There's so much going on in our world. There's so much chaos in our country. It doesn't always feel like Jesus is ruling. It often feels like he's not really there at all. And people are able just to do whatever they want. And one response could be, what did you expect? What did you expect when we removed God from the schools? What did you expect when the government took the place of parents? What did you expect when gay mirage was legalized and now sexuality is the idol of today? What did you expect when gender became fluid and objective truth was replaced with relativism and humanism? Where people can just make up their own truth. And even though our truths are contrary, it doesn't really matter. We just do whatever makes us happy. But Jesus is still ruling in the midst of his enemies. And we can see this today. We got to experience this in a very tangible way in June when the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade. Now states have the ability to completely abolish abortion. Murderers will now be prosecuted. Innocent children will no longer be murdered for the sins of their fathers. Babies will no longer be sacrificed on the altar of career or power or money or comfort. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is ruling as king in the midst of his enemies. And we are active participants in that. We have the honor and the privilege and the duty and the obligation to participate in bringing Jesus' rule and reign to this world. We do this in how we live and how we train our children and how we vote 
and how we get involved in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, and how we use the resources and the freedoms that God has given us. And we do this in how we make disciples. We have the honor and the privilege to experience the tangible rule and reign of Jesus in the midst of his enemies because we are his people. Look with me in verses three through four. It says his people will offer themselves freely in the day of his power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So who, who are his people in this verse? Well, I would say it's the church. It's us. We are his people. Revelation 19 shows a picture of God, of Jesus, on his white horse, in his robe dipped in blood. And he's with his armies in white linen garments. He's getting ready for his battle to defeat Satan. So if we are his people, how do we get these holy garments? Well, we get them because of Jesus. Not because of anything that we did. Jesus is our priest. And he has made atonement for our sins. So when God sees us, he doesn't see our sinfulness anymore. He sees what Jesus did for us on our behalf. And as you'll notice, the priesthood of Jesus has not come from an earthly lineage. And the history of Israel, it started with Aaron and it went down through the Levites. They were the priests. But not so with Jesus. Jesus was from the earthly lineage of David, but his priesthood comes from this person, Melchizedek. Now you might be familiar with the name, might have heard it somewhere, you might know uh, something about Melchizedek, but for those of us who don't, I'll just give a brief, a brief little snippet about who Melchizedek is. So he shows up in Genesis 14. There's only a few verses that, that talk about him. He's called the priest of God most high. So he's a priest. And then he's also the king of Salem, which was a Canaanite city before it was overtaken by Israel. So his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem or Shalom, which means peace. So he is the righteous king of peace, Melchizedek. So in this story in Genesis, Abraham has just had this successful battle and he goes and he meets Melchizedek. And Melchizedek gives Abraham bread and wine. And that should remind us of the sacraments, bread and wine. And in response, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had, showing that Abraham recognized who Melchizedek was. Now, there's some speculation about who Melchizedek is in the history of the Bible. There's no lineage of Melchizedek. He didn't have any parents. And so some say that he is a, what's called a Christophany or 
a physical uh, Jesus in the Old Testament. And there are several other examples of Christophanies throughout the Old Testament. When Moses goes to speak to the burning bush, that's considered a Christophany. The fourth figure in that fiery furnace that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in, that's considered a Christophany, Jesus physically coming down and being with his people. When Isaiah has a surprise encounter with God in the temple, it's also considered a Christophany. So there's several accounts of Christophanies happening throughout the Old Testament. And Melchizedek is considered one of those by some. If you want to explore more about this, I would turn. I would have you turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 when you get a chance later on this week. The entire book of Hebrews is so encouraging. But chapter 7 and 8 uh, talk about Melchizedek in a lot more detail that I don't have time to get into tonight. But I would encourage you to look at that later on. So we are given these holy garments because Jesus is our priest. The job of a priest is to bring the people of God to God, to atone for their sins through a blood sacrifice so their relationship with God can be restored. Now, priests and sacrifices from the Old Testament are just types and shadows of the true priest and the ultimate sacrifice found in Jesus Christ. We are all born in sin. All of our garments are stained because of sin. And because of this sin, we have separation from God that we can never overcome. No matter how good we are, no matter whatever things we do, we can never restore that broken relationship on our own. We need a perfect sacrifice for that relationship to be restored. So Jesus was born a man just like us, yet without sin. He lived a perfect life that none of us could ever live. And in full obedience to God, he went to the cross to suffer the wrath of God on our behalf, to pay the penalty of our sin that we needed to bear on our own. And he fully and completely atoned for our sin because he was sinless. But he didn't stay in the grave when he died. He rose from the dead and he conquered sin and death. And for those of us who will put our faith and our trust in him and what he has done, we aren't seen as sinful anymore in the eyes of God. We are seen as righteous because of what Jesus has done. His righteousness is imputed onto us. And now we are seen as wearing holy garments justified before a holy God because of what Jesus has done. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is our king and is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies. Because of the, rex of the resurrection, Jesus is our priest. He's interceding for us to God as we are covered by his blood and forgiven of our sins. And because of the resurrection, Jesus is also our Messiah and will conquer his enemies. Look with me in verses five through seven. 
The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The role of the Messiah was to deliver Israel from foreign bondage and restore and restore it to the glories of its golden age. And like Chris talked about last week, especially the zealots in the time of Jesus were so fixated on this one aspect. They wanted Rome overthrown and they wanted the kingdom of Israel to come back in power just like in their glory days. But Jesus had a different plan. Jesus had a bigger plan. His plan was not just in that historical moment. To him, Rome was just a blip on the timeline of history. Jesus had eternity in mind during his earthly ministry. And as we'll see in these few verses, the rule and reign of Jesus starts small and expands out. First, it says he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. You could insert presidents, prime ministers, politicians in for kings. Anyone who's in authority and seeks their own glory. Anyone who does not submit to the rule and reign of Jesus will be shattered on the day of his wrath. They will be destroyed. And then he goes out a little bit farther. And he says, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Nations who are opposed to God. Nations who seek their own power and their own glory, who want to become gods themselves. Those nations will be judged righteously and the nation will be filled with dead bodies. Next it says, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Now there's a different translation that says it a little bit differently and I kind of like this. It says he will crush the head that is over the wide earth. And I like this translation because it makes us think about Genesis 3. The fall, Adam and Eve have just disobeyed God. And now God has come down to give them punishments and promises. He tells Adam that now work for him is going to be very, very difficult. He tells Eve, that now childbirth will be very, very painful. And for both of them, there's going to be strife and difficulty in their relationship. And he tells the serpent that now you get to crawl on your belly and eat the dust from the ground. And then God gives a promise. He says to the serpent, you will bruise his heel, but he, the Messiah, will crush your head. 
When Jesus, our Messiah, returns, he will crush the head of the devil, who for right now has power and influence over the entire earth. And while we're entangled in that struggle, because of the resurrection, we can have assurance that Jesus will be victorious. It says in verse 7, He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. And this is a kind of an interesting phrase, he will drink from the brook by the way. I wasn't exactly too sure what this was talking about. Uh, some commentators think that just because of his total victory, he'll be able to completely, without any fear of any enemies around him, drink from the water. Some commentators think that it wants to remind us of Gideon and the story of Gideon's army and that on his way to battle, he had some interactions with God and God was telling him, you know what, Gideon, your army is just a little too big. If you guys win the battle, you might get the glory instead of me. So I want you to tell your army, if there's anybody who's scared, they can go home. And so he goes from 22,000 to 10,000. And God says, ah, it's still too big. So when you guys go down to the water, if anyone scoops up the water in their hand and drinks from their hand, put them aside, everyone else can go home. And he goes from 10,000 to 300. And God says, ah, that's enough. You will never win with 300 men by yourself. So this is to remind us that Jesus is the one who gets the victory. He is the one who gets the glory for the victory. And it says, therefore, because of this total victory, he will lift up his head. He will be victorious in the end. So as we close our time, there's just a few things I want us to be thinking about. How are we living in light of Jesus being king right now? Does Jesus have authority over our life? Are we submitted to King Jesus? Are we his servants? Or are we serving something or somebody else? How are we living in light of Jesus as our priest? Have we accepted forgiveness from our sin? Or are we still harboring guilt over the things that we have done? Have you forgiven others who have sinned against you? Or are you still hanging on to bitterness and resentment? How are we living in light of Jesus as our Messiah, who will come and be victorious over his enemies? Are we living in fear and anxiety for the future? Or are we living in the light of the knowledge that Jesus will return to conquer his enemies and make all things right. So as we go out this week, I want us to be encouraged in the knowledge and truth 
that because of the resurrection, Jesus is now at the right hand of God. He is ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies as our king. He is interceding for us on our behalf as our high priest. And he will one day come back and judge the nations and crush the head of Satan as our Messiah. And he will lift up his head in victory and we will be with him in holy garments. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this truth that we can put in our hearts. God, we thank you that we can worship you as our king, that we can come to you as our high priest, and that we can have assurance that you are our Messiah who will one day come back and put Satan to death. And you will be victorious. And we will share in that victory with you as your people. God, please help us to be encouraged. Help us to be empowered. Help us to be a light to, to this world as we get out this next week and as we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a couple more songs as we close our time here. It's been great doing church in the park, especially with the weather the way it's been this, this year. Uh, we will be back in the building for Kaleo next week, so don't show up here or you'll be maybe lonely <laughs> and very, very late. Yes. Um, and also... On Monday, is that what you guys are doing? So the teamies are doing uh, another service on Labor Day at their house. So if you want more details about that, talk to Cliff or Deborah. And Sam's going to sing a couple more songs for us. Ha, ha, ha.